they say there are two things you should never talk about um, with people that you love. Um, it's politics and religion, right? That's what they say. And so this morning, I thought we'd talk about both of them. <laughs> oh, it should be fun. It should be fun. We're going we're gonna to jump into the scriptures here in just a moment. We're going to be in the Old Testament, and uh, we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the uh, title of the message this morning is God in Government. God in Government. Uh, we all know that we find ourselves a few weeks away from a presidential election and as tired as we all are of politics. Can somebody say amen? Uh, I do feel some responsibility to, work, uh, to look into the Word of God together to see if we can find some truth to build our lives upon. We are inundated 24 hours a day with fear. Uh, opinion, anger, uh, rhetoric, and in the words of that great theologian Dolly Parton, it's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Can you say amen? Uh, it, it really, really can. But again, we're going to go to truth today. We're not, we're not going for opinion or rhetoric. We're going to go for truth, and that's found in the Word of God. First Samuel chapter 8 is where we will be up until this point. The people, the nation of Israel, had been living under what we would call a theocracy. A theocracy is a nation that is ruled by God. And under God, uh, he had some leaders. He had prophets and, and priests, which were primarily you know, spiritual in function. And then he also had judges. And the judges would get involved in civil matters uh, for the people of Israel. So if two neighbors had a dispute and they couldn't work it out, they would come before a judge and that judge would issue a ruling and, and say, no, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And so uh, we, we had these prophets, we had the priests, and we had the judges. However, with any system of government, any system of government, it's always going to be imperfect because it works through imperfect people. And the people of Israel, there were several things going on at this time. Number one, their families were kind of falling apart. There was a breakdown of the family unit. Number two, there was some corruption in the government, and there was also some injustice going on. Again, things that we always see from, you know, from start to finish all the way up until our day. We're always going to see those things. So Israel cried out to Samuel, who was a prophet, and said, Samuel, listen, we've been doing this theocracy thing. We don't really like it. Uh, we, we don't like what's going on with the prophets and the priests and the judges. So in and, and Samuel, when we look around at other nations, they all have kings. And so we'd like to have, we want a king for ourselves. And this is what they said to the man of God, the prophet. So let's go to 1 Samuel 8 and verse 6, and we'll kind of track this story a little bit. It said, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Again, they had been living under this theocracy, the way God wanted it here, and, and they don't like it. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, for they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. God says, I, I've, I've been their king, but they would like to trade me for an earthly king. Verse 8, according to all the works which they've done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are also doing to you. 
Verse 9, now therefore heed their voice, however, God says, however, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. God says, Samuel, don't take this personally. When they're crying out for a king, they aren't rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me. So go ahead, give them what they want. But before you do, warn them. Everyone say, warn them. Warn them. Tell them how they will be treated under a king. And in verse 10, Samuel begins to tell them exactly that. Let's look at it together. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. Verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. Is anyone noticing a pattern yet? Take, 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 take his, 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 yours, 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 yours. God said, okay, you can have a king, but here's what you need to know. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to take from you and build his own kingdom. How many second guess this idea of a king? Maybe, maybe it's not the best idea. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, he's not done. He will take a tenth of your grain. We're here in 2020 saying, if they only took a tenth. <laughs> Come on, somebody. <laughs> he will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants Verse 16, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men. He, he wants your children and your donkeys. Our donkeys will not even be exempt. He's going to take and, and put them to whose work? His work. Verse 17, and he will take a tenth. Here's another tenth of your sheep. And then he, he finishes off with this, and you will be his servants. This passage amazes me. It's almost like God knew exactly what political kingdoms would do. And he did, didn't he? And he said, this is what they will do. They will take, take, take from their citizens, and at the same time, demand your obedience he says you will be his the earthly king's servants and then verse 18 and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves God said I didn't choose this for you you're, you're choosing this king in this political system for yourselves and then he he I mean he just he makes a statement that like wow it pierces 
and the Lord will not hear you in that day. What a somber warning. God says your king will become so oppressive that you will change your mind and you will cry out to me and you'll say, God, hey, I like the old system better. Lord, you were right. We should have never rejected you in the first place. God says you're going to cry out to me and I will not listen. I have been asked the past few weeks by numerous people if the things going on in our country could be a punishment from God. From my study of Scripture, here's what I see. God often lets us have what we want, even if it's not the best for us. When we pursue something long enough and hard enough and passionate enough, and we reject him over and over and over again, God gets to the point where he says, okay, if you want it, I'm going to let you have it even if it was never his ultimate plan for us. This is exactly what happened in Israel. It's not necessarily a punishment. We simply get the results of our choices. Israel demands a king. God warns them what a king will do to them. He will take, take, take. He'll build his own kingdom. He'll demand obedience. You would think after hearing this warning, Israel would say, okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Lord, deny that request. Let's slow down a minute. We were wrong. We didn't realize that he was going to be a taker. We, we didn't realize that. You would think that they would say, Let, let's wind back this prayer. But they don't. That's not what they say at all. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, said, no, but we will have a king over us. Wow. God told them that this new form of government is going to be oppressive. It's going to take over their lives. And they said, we want it. And verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. Remember, Israel has this special, unique relationship with God. But now they say, we want to be like every other nation and then they say this that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles now all through the rest of scripture we even looked at it last week we would hear the people of israel saying he, he is the lord strong in 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 battle he's the god who will fight our battles for us but now israel's in a place where they say we no longer want the lord of hosts king jehovah to fight for us we'd rather have an earthly king do it how many think that's a bad trade-off <laughs> why would we, why would you ever trade the lord of hosts for an earthly king what are they doing they're transferring their dependence from a heavenly king to an earthly king they no longer want to take personal responsibility for their families they want a king to take care of them but the reality is a king can't take care of them no form of government can whether it's a monarchy a democracy a, de a, democ a democratic republic socialism communism a government cannot meet all the needs of its citizens by its very nature government cannot give anything to us that it first doesn't take from us this is what the word of god says by nature government is not a giver government is a taker 
Now, not all government is bad. Government is created by God. We have lots of great people even in this room who have worked or do work in government. But government needs to have its limits, and it is a terrible replacement for God. After the first presidential debate a couple of weeks ago, I had an interaction with a person who said this. They said, I don't want to live under a dictator, but I do want someone to take care of me. This was an older person, and I wanted to give them the respect that they deserve, so I didn't argue with them. But I did walk away saddened that they couldn't see the correlation between their fears and their desires. If you empower a government... (laughs) to meet all your needs, you also empower them to take all your freedoms. Here we are in a very divisive political season in our country, but it's not anything new. I mean, think about our history. Our country's been through a revolutionary war. Our country's been through a civil war. And if you think that the current political climate is something new, I just want to challenge you. Go on YouTube today and pull up a couple of episodes of All in the Family or the Jeffersons. And you will see that the things that we're fighting over today, we've been fighting over for 50 years. The difference is back then we could fight over it and laugh about it. Now we can't. We've lost the ability to be civil. But as Christians, we are faced with decisions concerning voting. What, what, are, what are we to do? As you know, the two uh, major political parties have nominated Joe Biden and Donald Trump. There are also uh, some third-party candidates such as Joe Jorgensen. And in Maryland, even Kanye West is on the ballot. So you do have... You do have some choices. I know, let that sink in. You do have some choices, but, but in all practical terms, either President Trump is going to be reelected or uh, former Vice President Joe Biden will become our new president. Now, often we, when we talk politics, we, we look at the candidates themselves and their personalities, and, and, and we often just kind of pit those two together. Um, both of these men have pretty big personalities. They have pretty big personalities that can be pretty polarizing. Okay, if I wanted, I could show you some video clips of both of them today that would be less than flattering. And honestly, the first debate was pretty embarrassing on both sides from a personality standpoint. Someone told me the other day, they said, hey, hey, uh, Joe Biden has the ability to unite the country because of his demeanor. And you know what I did? I looked at them and called them a lion dog face pony soldier. <laughs> That's a joke if you don't know what it is. He called someone that, a young lady uh, who asked him a question. So I don't think either one of these men is going to unite the country because we are deeply divided. I don't think either one of these men is going to win a personality contest. And frankly, that's really not what matters. 
What really matters is the party platform they support. That's, that's what really matters, because if President Trump gets reelected, we're going to have to put up with his personality for four more years, and then he's going to be gone, but his policies will live on. If, if former Vice President Joe Biden gets elected, we have to put up with his personality for four to eight years, but after he's gone, his policies could, could live on for decades. So, so the idea that we're in this personality contest, that's just, that's just unwise to get hung up on either one of them. We need to look at the party platforms that they represent. And, and here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to challenge you to actually read the party platforms. You can, you can get online and you can find them. They're on their websites and just read through them. And here's what I believe you and I as Christians need to be looking for. Which one of these platforms is more conducive for us to live out our faith in public and to fulfill the mission of the church. From time to time, we all need to realize that Jesus is not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not even American. Okay? Jesus is Lord of all. This planet is simply his footstool. He's sitting on a throne and his feet are propped up on this planet. He owns it all. And we also have to remind ourselves that our mission in life is not to be popular. It's not to be accepted by the world. It's not even to just build our business or build our bank accounts. Our, our mission in life is to take the most important message in this world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and openly proclaim it and live it amongst the peoples. That's our most important mission. There are lots of different issues that many of us are passionate about. But this week and next week, I'm going to talk about two of them that I feel are paramount issues in America from a biblical standpoint. From a biblical standpoint. And there are two things. Family and freedom. Family and freedom. Today we're going to talk about family a little bit. In Genesis chapter 2, God created something called a family. God created the first family, and that family consisted of one man and one woman. In the next chapter, Adam and Eve were intimate, and they began producing children. So the first family was a husband and a wife, and sex was designed to be enjoyed within that marriage for both their pleasure and reproduction. This is God's plan for the family and the structure in which he intends for human flourishing. Before there was ever a governor, there was a husband. Before there was ever a president, there was a wife. Before there was ever an army, there was a dad. Before there was ever a school, there was a mom. Order in the Bible is very important because it signifies importance. And before there was ever a government of any kind, God created family. 
The family is God's beautiful design, and it is the foundational construct for human flourishing. The Word of God teaches it, and sociologists have confirmed it over and over and over again that the way to have the, the most healthy society to raise the strongest and most healthy children is, is within this traditional family of one man and one woman. Now, most of the problems we see in our culture today can be directly traced to the breakdown of the biblical family. Almost every problem in our culture today can be traced to the breakdown of this biblical family. Remember in our opening passage, Israel's crying out for an earthly king. Why were they doing that? Because their families had broken down. Dr. Tony Evans, he's the first black man ever to have a study Bible in a Bible commentary to bear his name. And here's what he says about this passage, and I couldn't agree with him more. He says this, Israel was crying out because it was a case of family breakdown leading to an appeal for government to come to society's rescue when the family should have led the way. In this sense, the situation in 1 Samuel 8 is not that different from what we see happening in our own culture today. Many of the problems that government tries to fix are present because the family unit has broken down. Thus, people often want the government to manage affairs that should be in the hands of families. But when civil government reaches into other spheres that God has instituted, things like family or the church, government grows far beyond its divinely authorized scope. This allows government to both confiscate and redistribute what should not be moved. This is exactly what God warned Israel against, yet they insisted on having a human king. Again, government is not bad. Government in itself is not evil. It's created and designed by God, but it has a limited scope of authority. And when we reach out to government and try to get government to meet the needs that family should be meeting, this is why we end up fighting one another. This is why we end up like, I mean, we become like kids fighting over their, their parents' in, in inheritance. Like, well, I want the government to do this for me, and I want the government to do this for me, and I want the government to do this for me. We're a country of over 300 million people. Government cannot and should not try to meet every need. Our thirst for government power brings out the absolute worst in us. God created something better to meet the needs of the family, and, and that's a mom and a dad. <laughs> I, I want to read to you a speech by a famous politician. I think it's profound and powerful. I don't agree with everything that this politician has said or done, but on this we see eye to eye. This was a speech that he gave at a church on Father's Day. And I want you to listen to the words. He says, Of all the rocks upon which we build our lives, we are reminded today that family is the most important. And we're called to recognize and honor how, criti er, and honor how critical every father is to that foundation. They are teachers and coaches. They are mentors and role models. They are examples of success in the men who constantly push us toward it. 
But if we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit too that too many fathers are also missing. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our families are weaker because of it. You and I know how true this is in the African American community. We know that more than half of all black children living in uh, single-parent households, a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. This, was, this speech was given in 2008. The number is higher now. This man goes on and he says, We know the statistics that children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crime. They are nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems or run away from home or become teenage parents themselves. And again, he says, and the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. He continues, how many times in the last year has this city lost a child at the hands of another child? How many times have our hearts stopped in the middle of the night with the sound of a gunshot or a siren? How many teenagers have we seen hanging out on the street corners when they should have been sitting in a classroom? How many are sitting in prison when they should have been working or at least looking for a job? How many in this generation are we willing to lose to poverty or violence or addiction? How many? He goes on to say this, yes, we need more cops on the street. Yes, we need fewer guns in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Yes, we need more money for our schools and more outstanding teachers in the classrooms and more after-school programs for our children. Yes, we need more jobs and more job training and more opportunities in our communities. He lists all this stuff. He says this, but we also need families to raise our children. We need fathers to realize that the responsibility does not end at conception. We need them to realize that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child. It's the courage to raise one. We need to help all the mothers who are out there raising these kids by themselves, the mothers who drop them off at school, go to work, pick them up in the afternoon, work another shift, get dinner, make lunches, pay the bills, fix the house, and all the other things that it takes both parents to do. So many of these women are doing a heroic job, but they need support. They need another parent. Their children need another parent. That's what keeps their foundation strong. It's what keeps the foundation of our country strong. You know who said that? Senator Barack Obama to the Apostolic Church of God in Chicago in 2008. What a powerful speech. The United States of America does not need a bigger, more powerful government. What we need are strong families. It was only 12 years ago that a Democrat senator running for president spoke that message in a church. Yet in 2020, we see powerful political movements gaining momentum in our nation, and one of their founding principles is to dismantle the traditional family. Friends, the results 
of fractured families has been disastrous to us. And the further dismantling of the traditional biblical family will be one of the worst things to happen to our society. And the ones who will suffer the most will continue to be women and children. When I vote... I will be voting for the platform that best supports the traditional biblical family because it is the strength of our nation and the hope of our future. And as he did in his speech and as I will do today, we do salute. We have awesome single moms and single dads in our congregation who are rock stars and are doing an awesome job and we salute them. We don't disparage them or discourage them in any way. But I will tell you this, because I pastor them, I talk to them, I know what they're going through. They would tell you, they, even though they're doing a great job as, as, as being single, a single parent, they would tell you they would love to have a good, godly spouse to do life with and to raise their kids with. They would tell you that. We're going to take a couple of moments and we're going to pray. And then we're going to end our broadcast today, but I want you to stay seated so I can talk to you as, as, as our local church, okay? Uh, we're, you know, we, we do a broadcast ministry and we use it to reach out, but sometimes we just need to talk to, to one another as people who are doing life together. So just stay seated. Uh, today is, is a day of prayer and fasting. Uh, Franklin Graham has called for that. Many others have called for that. So we encourage you. Let's take a couple of moments. Let's pray for our nation. Let's pray for the families. Um, and, and throughout the week and, and throughout the day, be continuing to pray. Uh, God is our only hope. There, there, there's, there's no candidate, there's no party who can fix the soul of this nation. They just cannot. We are too divided. We have rejected him too many times. We need a revival is what we need. <laughs> we need a move of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, you have, you have warned us that when we put our faith in earthly kings, in earthly kingdoms, that we're always going to come up short. We're always going to come up divided. We're always going to come up disappointed. Father, our land, our people, we need you desperately, desperately. God, we are a people who have sinned against you in so many ways, God. We have neglected your word. We have rejected the working of your Holy Spirit. God, we've done it personally. I've done it. The people in this room have done it. We, we, we've done it collectively. Our, our, our government has, has often trampled upon your truth and, and treated it like it was a fable. And we suffer the consequences. Lord, would you forgive us our sins? Would you heal this land? Would you send forth a mighty, mighty revival? A sweeping move of your Holy Spirit. Lord, go from coast to coast. Go from house to house. Go from heart to heart. God, come in and do the work that only you can do, Father. Lord, fill every pulpit. Let your word be like fire 
shut up in our bones, God, that we have to speak the word of truth, that we'll not be fearful, that we'll not be intimidated, God, that we'll not allow the voice of the enemy or the voice of the mob or the voice of the crowd to be louder in our hearts and minds than the voice of your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray for your church, that your church would rise up, God, that your church would put on your full armor, Lord. We would have on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, God. We would have on the shoes of peace and the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit would come out of our mouths, God, that we would wrap ourselves in your love and we would see ourselves as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that we would stop fighting over the petty temporal things that do not matter in this world, God, and we would be consumed with the gospel, Lord, knowing that we have a nation and we have people who will spend an eternity without you, God, unless they repent of their sins and give their hearts back to you. Lord, you've done mighty works in this nation before. We ask you to do it again. Do it again, Lord. God, we pray for our families. Help us not to be people who sit back and criticize what's happening in the White House and then we ignore what's happening in our own homes. God, I pray for husbands and wives that we would fall in love with Jesus. We would fall in love with one another. I pray for our kids that the things of this world would sicken them and disgust them, God, and they would be captivated by a love for you, God. God, raise up. Raise up a counter-culture revolution of young men and young women who want to live in holiness, in purity, who want to be used as vessels of your glory. God, use our kids to be those vessels. God, we thank you. We praise you. You said, Lord, if we would turn our hearts to you, you would hear from heaven and that you would heal our land. Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.